Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. As we continue in our series, we'll be looking at verses uh, 12 to 17 of chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. And Father, we again this week come to these words and are reminded of uh, the frailty of life. We pray, Lord, as we consider them, as you uh, teach us from them, that we would have a greater appreciation for our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you know, Solomon is on this quest, and he's looking for the meaning of life. That's kind of the goal here. As we've learned, he's a man with all the resources necessary to do this. He has the money. He's able to do a thorough investigation. He has all the wisdom as well in his investigation and know what he's doing. And just as important, he has all the curiosity. He really, really desires. He is persistent in the pursuit to find purpose. He's diligent, diligent in his desire to find dignity to life. And yet he keeps coming up short. And that's what we've seen. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That was the conclusion after each one of his quest and his attempt to find meaning. He thought early on that the pursuit of wisdom would give him all the answers. That's what we learn in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Uh, but that investigation led him to the conclusion that what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. That's verse 15 of chapter 1. That is that there were so many things in life that he couldn't straighten out or that didn't add up that his quest ended in failure. And yet he didn't give up. He turned to morality, to knowing the difference between right and wrong. That's what we learn in chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. But this pursuit as well ended in adding to his vexation and to his sorrow. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's verse 18. And so that quest ended in failure, and he still didn't give up, as we saw last week, and he turns the pleasure, the pleasure of wine, the pleasure of great works, of servants, of wealth, even the pleasures of women, and yet he, even the greatest of pleasures in all the world, in all of life, failed to satisfy his soul. He considered all that his hands 
had done and the toil he had expended in doing it, behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. He says there was nothing to be gained from it under the sun, verse 11, but he didn't give up. He, he continues his quest. He couldn't help it. He, he needed to know why. We have to understand what's going through his mind. And so with this persistent perseverance, he kept looking for the meaning of life. And that leads us to our text this morning. In verses 12 to 17, Solomon does what most of us do when we can't find what we're looking for. Just the other day, I was looking for the, the plug for the charger, so I checked in the desk, and then I checked in the drawers um, that it would most likely be, that you would expect it to be. I checked uh, in the cabinets, all these places that I would likely find it, and I didn't find it there, so I checked other locations, and then when I didn't find it there, what did I do? I went back to where I started. And I checked the desk again, and I checked the drawers, and I figured I had to miss something. I had to check a second time. See, when it didn't turn up, I assumed that where it's likely to be is where the answer would be, that I would find it. That's what we do when something is missing. We go back to the place where it ought to be, even when we looked there before, and that's exactly what Solomon does here in verses 12 to 17, verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom in madness and folly. Now, those words should sound familiar. We heard them in chapter 1. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, says verse 13. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness in folly, says verse 17 of chapter 1. And so Solomon's returning to where he looked before. Apparently, he wants to make sure uh, that he didn't miss anything. Something's going on. He's, he can't find the answer, and so he goes back. After pursuing pleasure, he, he reconsiders the claims of madness and wisdom and folly. Now, when it says madness and folly, it's not two different things. It, it's not two different categories. They go together. It's a, it's a figure of speech. Madness and folly mean the same thing. Uh, it's referring to, uh, to behavior that's senseless, behavior that's irrational. And so the contrast is between wisdom on the one hand and mad or frivolous or absurd folly on the other. He's going to study the difference between the right way and the wrong way to live. And he wants to see if that gets him anywhere in his pursuit to find meaning and purpose in life. And so he's leaving no stone unturned. He goes back to wisdom and mad folly to make sure that he has, been he has considered every conceivable angle. That's what Phil Riken says. He wanted to write the last word about the meaning of life. And thus he desired to make his quest as comprehensive as possible. And that's the meaning of verse 12. You look there, it says, For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now, there is some general difficulty among commentators on interpreting these words. But basically, Solomon is saying, I'm the wisest and I'm the wealthiest king that will ever live. And, and so no king after me can improve on my experiment here. We, we've touched on this already. If I can't find meaning in life, then no one else will be able to find meaning in life. 
And so Solomon is the ultimate test case presenting the ultimate definitive statement on life's meaning. And so far, he's struck out twice when it comes to finding this meaning. He struck out with wisdom, and he struck out with pleasure, and so he changes it up. And what he's going to do is he's, he's devising a new uh, test. This time, what he's going to do is investigate whether the use of wisdom offers any benefits over just following folly. He asks the question, is the wise person better than the fool? And when we turn to verse 13, there does seem to be some glimmer of hope. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Now, up until now, what has it been? Vanity. Up until now, it's only been a chasing after the wind. He asked the question in chapter 1, what does man gain by all his toil? And the answer was nothing. In chapter 1, wisdom was unable to straighten what it was crooked or count what is missing. It only brought sorrow. It, it brought vexation. But here, when compared to folly, wisdom is a better alternative. It's at least better to be wise than to be a fool. Uh, there's a night and day difference between the two. They are kind of polar opposites. Look at the end of verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. As you know, it's better to be in the light than in the dark. When I was little, um, just like my daughters, when they were little, at night we wanted a nightlight. I have to be honest and say sometimes I still do. Um, why? Because light is better than darkness. Uh, but this isn't what he's getting at ultimately as being afraid of the dark. It's a matter of who navigates life better. In the Old Testament, light speaks of safety. It, it, it speaks of salvation, while darkness uh, means danger and, and even disaster. And so that's the contrast. Without the light of wisdom, what he's saying is the fool stumbles around in the darkness. And that's the point of the beginning of verse 14. Verse 14 is a proverb. And what it does is it elaborates on why wisdom is like light and folly like darkness. The wise person, he says, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. See, wisdom not only gives light, it gives us sight. To say that the wise person walks with his eyes in his head means that he can actually see what is going on. He can see where he is going. He has a, a, a useful perception on life. And by contrast, the, the fool is as blind as a bat. That's the point. He does not have eyes at all, but he just stumbles around in the dark. He walks in darkness. And this darkness is not just all around him. It's, it's within him, uh, inside him, because he has no eyes which to see. Simply put, one commentator said, the wise are able to see their way around in life while fools grope about in the darkness of their ignorance. And so it seems that Solomon's quest has reached an answer. Finally, there is a profit. There is gain for the human toil of delivering life's mysteries. Wisdom turns out to be the answer. He turns back to it now. And so I guess the quest can end. And we know better than that. He went back and he looked and he found the answer. No, he didn't ultimately find the answer. 
That is not the outcome. Uh, The proverb here, verse 14, may be true enough. Wisdom in this life uh, under the sun is better than than, uh, foolishness, and light is better than darkness. But Solomon keeps going. He keeps investigating. He won't leave well enough alone. You know, he found a satisfying answer. He could have just let it go. No, he doesn't. Look at the end of verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, and the fool walks in darkness, the end. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. If you have the NIV, it says the same fate overtakes them both. And then he continues in verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. And so Solomon discovers that, yes, the wise are better than the fool, but there's another truth, another reality that, that kind of presses upon his heart. And that truth is this, all people die. And so we don't have any light this week either. It's still uh, doom and gloom. As verse 16 says, the wise die just like a fool, just like the fool and so what use is there to being wise? Uh, when, our, when we die, our wisdom will be no good to us. And so the gain from wisdom is only temporarily and does not answer the question and the meaning of life. It's just vanity. Why? Because death is the great equalizer. The psalmist says this, even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish. Psalm 49.10. You see, the certainty of death kind of frustrates all our efforts to find meaning to life under the sun. And so it's no surprise that Solomon's going to frequently, in this uh, letter, in this book, return to this theme. He first mentioned it in chapter 1, verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. And he mentions it in chapter 3, verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. And then he'll mention it in chapter 5, and then he'll mention it in chapter eight, 6, and then he'll mention it in chapter 8, and then in chapter 9, and then in chapter 12. He could not avoid the subject as he looked at life under the sun. Uh, death is the most obvious facts of life. And so what Solomon's doing is facing up to it. He's embracing it. What happens to the fool will happen to me also, he says. He makes it personal. It's one thing to know about death theoretically, and that death will come. It's quite another thing to ponder it uh, uh, and, and consider it personally. And that's what Solomon's doing here. He's considering death personally. Now, his, his meditation on his mortality leads him to, to a question in verse 15. What then have I been, why then have I been so very wise? If we all end up the same, then there is ultimately no gain in being wise. Why did I bother spending so much time becoming so wise? Is there any benefit at all? Well, he does answer that partially. He did say there's at least navigating of life. It helps with that. Uh, Maybe we can leave a legacy. Maybe there's some more, you know. Maybe our reputation can live on in the memory of others. 
after we die. That's usually what we do at a, a memorial service or a funeral. We share stories. We share the stories. This is a good thing, by the way. We share the stories of things we remember about a person that we loved, a person that we loved and lost, and we often share what we learned from them. And we may even use words like they're going to leave a legacy or make statements like they will never be forgotten. But the reality is what really happens, we're forgotten. We usually are. There are a select few who leave an imprint on society at last, but 99.9% of the time, those who have died are, are simply forgotten within a generation or two. And that's what verse 16 states, death erases the very memory of our existence. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies, just like the fool. Now, Solomon's fame has remained. I mean, after all these years, we still remember him. But we must remember what he's doing here. Remember, he's looking at life under the sun. And life under the sun is a life apart from God. And, and if there was no God, there'd be no Bible and there'd be no remembrance of Solomon as well. He would have been forgotten. And so the point still stands. Try as we may to make a name for ourselves through earthly achievements. Try as we may to leave a, a legacy. The reality is this. Death will win in the end, and the memory of us all will be lost in the annals of time. That's the good news for today. I, I chose to preach this book. Uh, Woody Allen, you've heard that name. Of all people, Woody Allen understood this. This is what he said. I don't want to achieve immortality. I don't want to leave a legacy, he says, through my work, through my earthly achievements. I want to achieve it by not dying. And that, that's what he realized. He understood it. He, he, and yet, in the reality is, all must die. That's the reality. And, and to be honest, who's going to remember us in 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now? I think I mentioned this the other week. I have a sweatshirt that says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And when I wear it, people think I'm going through depression. But it's just, it's the, re, it's the reality. Someday, we're all going to die. Our hearts will beat one last time. And that'll be the end of our days here in life under the sun on the earth. And we will be forgotten. And as morbid as that topic is, I realize that, we must stop and we must meditate on it at least at some point. And so here's that point. And if we do that with only the limited view of life under the sun, we cannot help but come to the conclusion that Solomon comes to here. Look at verse 17. It's a very strong language. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after the wind. You know, it's one thing to just be disappointed in life. Oh, things didn't quite go exactly like I planned. But no, to be frustrated. But hating life is another thing entirely. It's very strong language. Especially coming from this wise teacher whose whose vocation is to find and to teach us the key to life. You know, we started this quest, and Solomon said, I'm going to teach you something about life, the meaning of life, and all these things, and, and he's come to the conclusion, by the way, I hate life. 
They kind of be like LeBron James starting an interview with a, a group of would-be excited basketball players and saying, let me start by saying, I hate basketball. It's terrible. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't instill confidence in these people. See, Solomon seems to be spiraling down into absolute despair. It's not that he just hates life uh, in, in general. He hates the whole exercise of human existence, says one commentator. And so this is where, understand this, this is where life under the sun eventually leads. All your wisdom, all your hard work under the sun is vanity and a striving after wind. And so let me ask a question. Do you hate life? I mean, really, do you just really just ever just hate life? Is it grievous to you? Are you ever worried, wow, when I, I die, I'll be forgotten? Maybe you hate life for some other reasons than Solomon. Maybe you hate life right now for the physical pain that you're, you're suffering. Or maybe you hate it for the unjust suffering or a broken relationship and you just hate life or financial hardships or many, many other disappointments. Just fill in the blank for whatever the reason. If you're living life under the sun, that is, if you're living life apart from God, it's not surprising that you hate life. In fact, let me just say it. If Solomon could be morbid, so can I. You probably should hate your life if all there is is life under the sun. You probably should. Because all you have to look forward to, Solomon is saying, is death. Is death. And the thought of death makes it hard to cope with and retain any excitement for life, especially when you put on top of that some physical ailment or, or struggle or relationship being broken. It only gets worse. It only gets worse, too, if you're living life under the sun. Why? Because every day you're one step closer to dying. I know it sounds terrible, uh, it sounds harsh. This is hardly this good pick-me-up, make-me-feel-good message, right? But it's the reality we must face. And of course, you can put off thinking about it for some time and, and then fill your days. I think we mentioned this last week with frivolous pursuits of pleasure to distract you. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But death will come, and possibly sooner than later. This is what the Scripture teaches. This is what the Bible says. It'll only get worse for you after that. It is appointed for man to die once. That's bad. We're all going to die. And then he says, and after that comes judgment. And so what is a person to do? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? We, we conclude every sermon, as we will, um, this way. The Bible offers an answer for that. See, if you haven't felt it, if you haven't, haven't felt the, the reality of the fact that someday I'm going to die, then you won't seek out the answer. But if you're there and you realize that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, you will die. But the free gift of life is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus himself tells us that knowing him, Knowing him is eternal life. He says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. 
See, the reality is this. Only Jesus Christ has conquered death and the grave. It's only through Christ. He tells us in Revelation chapter 1, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hades. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to us God, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. That's 1 Peter 3.18. And, and Hebrews tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I said, do you understand? Because Jesus took on flesh lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and conquered the grave by rising from the dead. Paul can say these words, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive, the grave is not the end for anyone who was wise enough to trust him. That's the reality. And so what will it be? Will you turn to Jesus Christ and live a, a, a freed life from the fear of death and a free to love life, to even have abundant life, as I'll mention or are you going to bury your head in the sand and say, I don't need that. My life's pretty good. And I guarantee you, if that's you, if you have said, no, I, I'm fine. Maybe you're here. And I know most of you, so I'm sure you're believers. We're going to touch on being a believer in a second. But it, it, maybe you're listening. It, it, if you don't know Jesus and you say, I don't need that. See, the truth is you haven't faced your mortality. You haven't looked death in the eye and said, it's coming for me. And you have no answer for that apart from Christ. Only one person has conquered the grave. Only one person is raised from the dead, and that is Jesus Christ. And so, he took on flesh for you. He died for you. He lived for you. He, he rose for you. And death is swallowed up in victory through him. And so will you turn to him and live? See, that's my uh, desire. Whenever I preach the gospel, for all of us to realize that we don't have to leave here this morning fearing death. We don't even have to leave here this morning wondering if there's meaning to life. We can know it and have our sins forgiven and gain eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so trust Christ today. But as I said, I know most of you here are probably believers you know this. Oh, let me close addressing you. There's obviously times when you may be thinking, I, I do hate life. Even as a believer, something tragic happens and you hate life and you don't understand. And, and maybe you have this clenched fist towards God. Things never seem to go your way. And you say to yourself, life stinks and then you die. And uh, of course, we know as Christians, we shouldn't hate life. That, that's the reality. We recognize that. But no matter how difficult things can be, it happens. Think of some of the great men in the Bible. 
that hated life. Job wanted to die. God called him one of the most righteous men alive. There was the most righteous man alive at his time. Job wanted to die. Moses wanted to die. That's what Numbers 11 says. Elijah wanted to die, 1 Kings 19. And Jonah himself, you had Job. Now you have Jonah wanted to die, Jonah 4.3. Every one of them wanted to die. They were believers. They trusted in God. They communicated with God. But then they changed their mind. They changed their mind. Why? Because they, 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 they changed their perspectives. And that's what we need to do. Life can be hard, but we need to change our perspective. Um, when you feel like you hate life, look at it differently. And the Bible provides a way to look at it. It's found in Paul's writings to the Colossians. He says, seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. That's the perspective we need when life is difficult. It won't make all the pain go away. It won't answer all the questions, but we'll be able to see it from a different vantage point. And so you don't look at your circumstances. You got to lift your gaze higher where the throne of heaven is, where Christ, your Lord and Savior, is seated. And only then, only then will you be able to love life because only then you will see Jesus and whom all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge are found. You, you may not enjoy everything in life. That's just the reality. Or be able to explain everything about life. But that's not what's important. What's important is that you live by the promises of God, not by explanations. Knowing that when he who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And so do you see how Christ once again, and I'll, I'll give it away, every sermon, the answer is going to be Jesus, you know that, but once again, he's the answer to Solomon's quest. For those who set their minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, there is life and there is wisdom beyond the grave. And that, beloved, is what makes this life, even when it's miserable, it makes it worth living. And so be wise. Be wise and look to Jesus and find hope in this world. You look to Jesus and find meaning in this world. Look to Jesus and find life. And how did he promise it in the scriptures? He called it abundant life. He offers you abundant life. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that now you would Indeed, help us by your spirit to lift our eyes above the things of this world and see our Savior who awaits us there in Christ's name. Amen.